0: Hello. Thank you for joining us for today's book forum. Our hashtag is CatoEvents. For those of you joining via social media, my name is Chelsea Follett, and I am a policy analyst in Cato's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, as well as managing editor of humanprogress.org, a website that chronicles with data the tremendous progress that humanity has made and that seeks to encourage the policies that make progress possible and allow humanity to effectively tackle the challenges that we face. While environmental challenges such as climate change have perhaps received less attention than usual amid the global pandemic, they are undoubtedly challenges worthy of attention and, of, and worthy of optimism. The book that is the topic of our forum today gives reasons to oppose a despairing outlook and makes a strong case that humanity will be able to rise to the occasion and effectively tackle environmental problems such as climate change. Apocalypse, never. Uh, Why environmental alarmism hurts us all examines the rise of apocalyptic environmentalism and the reasons that cause many of those with the most apocalyptic vision of the future to oppose the more obvious, tractable, evidence-based solutions, such as the adoption of nuclear power. As a staunch advocate for the environment and a nonpartisan pragmatist, Author Michael Schellenberger was dismayed to see many other leaders within the environmental movement engaging in despairing apocalypticism and becoming mired in partisanship. This book delivers an invigorating and encouraging message for those who care about the future of the planet. That message is that environmental progress is possible and in many cases is already underway. And despite the challenges that remain, there are reasons to take heart that technology, science, human ingenuity, and innovation offer humanity a path forward to avoid or mitigate the worst risks of climate change as well as other environmental problems, some of which this book deems even more urgent. This book advocates environmental humanism or the promotion of both environmental stewardship and human flourishing, seeing those goals as complementary rather than inherently in tension with one another. The book also infuses some much-needed rational optimism and a solutions-oriented approach into the environmental policy debate. The book has already received strong praise from scientists and scholars, including Harvard University's Steven Pinker and MIT climate scientist. Carrie Emanuel. I am pleased to introduce the author, Michael Schellenberger. Michael has been fighting for a greener planet for decades. He was named a Time Magazine Hero of the Environment, is a Green Book Award winner, and is the founder and president of Environmental Progress. Michael has been called North America's leading public intellectual on clean energy, among other titles, for his writings and TED Talks, which have been viewed over 5 million times. He helped save the world's last unprotected redwoods, and he led a successful effort by climate scientists and activists to keep nuclear power plants operating, thus preventing a massive spike in harmful emissions. Michael's research and writing have appeared in the Harvard Law and Policy Review, Democracy Journal, Scientific American, Nature Energy, and PLOS Biology, among other outlets, and have been cited by the New York Times, Slate, USA Today, the Washington Post, New York Daily News, and the New Republic, among others. Earlier this year, Schellenberger Uh, testified before the Committee on Science, Space, and Technology of the U.S. House of Representatives. The United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change invited him in 2019 to serve as an independent expert reviewer of its next assessment report. He holds a degree in Peace Studies and Conflict Resolution from Earlham College, and you can follow him on Twitter at SchellenbergerMD. We are delighted to also have Reed Watson join us. He is a professor of practice in the John E. Walker Department of Economics and the director of the Hayek Center for the Business of Prosperity, both at Clemson University. His research explores the economics of natural resource management, particularly uh, focusing on the legal institutions governing public lands, water, and wildlife, Resources. Prior to joining Clemson, Watson was executive director of the Property and Environment Research Center in Bozeman, Montana, a conservation and research institute dedicated to free market environmentalism. He holds a Bachelor of Science in Economics from Clemson University, a Master's Degree in Environmental Economics from Duke University, and a JD from Duke University's School of Law. After their discussion, our speakers will be taking questions from you, the audience. You can submit questions via our event webpage, through Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube. Please use our event hashtag hashtag. Cato events uh, when submitting questions. And please feel free to start submitting questions now or at any time before or during the Q&A. We'll get to as many as we can. So without further ado, Michael will now give his presentation to be followed by a dialogue with Reed, and then we will start taking your questions.
1: Thanks, Chelsea. Can you hear me okay? Everything okay? Good. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Thanks again. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be back in conversation with Cato. It's been almost 13 years since I participated in an online discussion around carbon pricing, cap and trade, climate policy with James Manzi and other uh, a, lar- a larger group of scholars. It was very interesting. So it's really nice to be back. Um, certainly, I think there's a lot in Apocalypse Never that should be of interest to Cato and, and obviously, um, um, I'm here for that reason, and so let me say a few things about the book, I'll say a few things that have occurred since the book came out, and areas that I think might be of interest to uh, Cato supporters and and friends. So, as mentioned, I, I wrote this book, uh, this was a book, well, my own history is that I'm a long-time environmental activist, as well as a writer, journalist, um, energy expert. I was, I changed my mind about nuclear power about 10 years ago. I decided that it was good, not bad, mostly good, not bad, and that we needed more of it if we were going to solve environmental problems, including mitigating climate change. And I was, I've been frustrated by the fact that many on the left are still very anti-nuclear, including, and especially those who are very alarmist about climate change. And I couldn't understand why this was. And I was working on a book about nuclear energy and the opposition to it. And last year, when things became really when the rhetoric became even more crazy than it all already was, about billions of people gonna die and adolescents were experiencing a lot of anxiety and depression. I have a fourteen year old daughter. She's fine because I talked to her about the science, but her friends are worried that they're not going to live long enough to have kids. and I think that's not okay, I think it's wrong, Um, I'm also been long bothered by efforts to deprive poor countries of cheap, reliable energy, whether hydroelectric dams or coal plants or nuclear plants. And that's been happening, um, increasingly occurring, uh, including denial by the World Bank of funding traditional financing for baseload cheap energy in poor countries. And then, obviously, I still wanted to address the the concerns that people have about nuclear energy and explain what I think nuclear energy is and why it's so important at at greater length than articles were able to do so. I had a lot of different motivations to write the book. I think those those are in the book and you can see them. Um, I'll say something about climate change. You know, my views actually didn't change as much as I think people might have thought they did on climate. My view of climate change is that it is real, that it's mostly, if not entirely, being caused by, by us, by our carbon emissions, that it does pose serious uh, challenges, threats, you could say, risks to a good uh, future and a positive um, stewardship of the natural environment but also that it's not the end of the world and that climate change is, is not even our most serious environmental problem, which I think continues to just be our use of landscapes and, and effect on habitats. Um, So the book is really, you can think of it in thirds. The first third is a debunking of the widespread myths. Climate change is not the end of the world. The Amazon is not the lungs of the earth and More importantly, that the solutions that people have pursued in places like Brazil, but including in Brazil, have been counterproductive in that they have imposed fragmented agriculture in an effort to get small as beautiful agriculture. We've ended up up fragmenting forest in many places when what you want to do is concentrate agriculture to reduce its environmental impact. I talk about how plastic waste is not the most important problem in the world, but much of what people are doing on it is also counterproductive. That's increasingly become clear that we don't recycle our plastics as much as people think they do. Often the plastics are sent abroad and including to poor countries that don't have waste management systems and the plastic waste ends up in the ocean. Um, uh, Actually making, uh, contributing to the problem, but it's not it wouldn't be as big of a concern of mine, and I point this out in the book, as overfishing, bycatch, and the outright killing of sea life. Um, the middle part of the book is to how humans save nature, the second third of the book. This is a part of the book that I think many Cato supporters will would enjoy. I make a defense of what you might call a Hayekian uh, uh, a Hayekian view of of prices as offering information that no centralized authority could possibly manage and and i use the case study of whales which were saved not once but twice through artificial substitutes the first time in the 19th century with kerosene from petroleum to substitute for whale oil which was being used for lighting fluid and in lights and then again in the 20th century when it when vegetable oils replaced whale oils for margarines and soaps in europe and that the over continued over whaling occurred by the Soviet Union, and to some extent by some managed economies in Japan and Norway, where they interfered with the price signal that was being set, set, sent, that was the alternatives were cheaper. And so I make a defense of, of that. At the same time, I think Apocalypse Never is also trying to say that. There's a physical reality here when you're dealing with environmental resources that precedes the economy, and we should we should pay attention to the physics of energy, that the environmental impact of energy, food and agriculture production, which is overwhelmingly our major impacts on Earth, are a function of power density of, and efficiency and economies of scale. And I point out that the first passages of maybe the first page of The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith is about a physical process, about a pin factory that is, is gaining efficiencies. And that that is the main physical, that physical transformation results in economic efficiencies, what we call economic efficiencies, and that those efficiencies are also important for what we call sparing the natural environment using less natural resource to allow for, for more nature. Um, I'll wrap up by saying that, um, well, let me say something about what I think some of the implications of it, because I know Cato is a Washington DC based think tank and you guys think a lot about policy. My view of energy policy is that we should be supporting transitions from energy dilute to energy dense fuel. So if you say, Michael, are you in favor of natural gas? I say, I support natural gas when it's replacing coal, but I don't support natural gas when it's replacing nuclear energy. Nuclear energy is zero pollution, zero zero air or water pollution, zero carbon emissions, a tiny footprint, a smaller mining footprint than oil and gas even, which is smaller than coal. And so that gets to questions of nuclear energy and nuclear energy I point out is a very special and very different technology from any of the fossil fuel technologies or, or other technologies in that it has always been a dual-use technology, and it's always been involved in, in um, questions of national security. So, I, for, for me, at a policy level, what really matters is supporting that transition towards energy-dense fuels and paying special attention to nuclear energy's role as a dual-use technology and one that the United States has long had an interest in being involved in heavily involved in, both at home and abroad, um, because of the special powers that it, it gives us. So I'll stop with that and look forward to the conversation.
0: Thank you, Michael. Uh, Reed will now begin his dialogue with you before we up and open up to Q&A from the audience. And again, please feel free to start submitting questions. Uh, now you do not have to wait until the Q&A begins to submit questions.
2: OK, well, I gather that's uh, my cue. Uh, just want to say thank you to Cato for hosting this event. And thank you to Michael for uh, writing and publishing what is, in my opinion, an interesting and important and a very timely book. I really enjoyed it immensely. And uh, uh, Chelsea says I've only got 20 minutes uh, before you have to open it up to the Q&A. But I would probably could fill an hour uh, with the, the, the questions I wanted to ask Michael. But first of all, let me just begin by saying congratulations because from one author to another I know how uh, how much work goes into writing a book like this and it must it must feel good to have it off your desk and, and in readers' hands um, if I had to characterize and I wanted to give a, a little bit of table setting before I ask some some questions of Michael I would I would characterize this especially to a Cato audience as something of a, a hybrid between Bjorn Lumborg's uh, skeptical environmentalist, and Matt Ridley's Rational Optimist. Now, I hope some of you have, have read uh, at least one or both of those texts, but I wanted to see, uh, Michael, how you would react to that. I found this to be very much like skeptical environmentalist. Obviously, it's more current. Uh, it's, it's maybe also more approachable in that most of your anecdotes um, really kind of bring to life some of these, these arguments, but it is very much objective and scientifically rigorous in its treatment of environmental issues. And that was refreshing and and, and reminiscent of Lomborg's uh, uh, skeptical environmentalist. And then the second book I think it it evokes memories of is Matt Ridley's Rational Optimist uh, for the obvious reasons that you, unlike most, maybe most environmentalists, see uh, economic prosperity and environmental quality not as mutually exclusive, but as potentially reinforcing and consistent with one another. Is that a fair characterization? Would you, assuming you're familiar with those two uh, books, Michael, is that is that a fair characterization of how this book might um, might uh, be placed into context?
1: Yeah, thank you, Reed. Thank you for your kind words, and it's really nice to have a conversation with you. And and of course, I um 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 I'm delighted to to have this, and I agree that we could easily spend more than twenty minutes. Um, so, certainly, on on big questions, my book is in that tradition of Bjorn and and Matt, and I really agree with them on a bunch of big questions of that modernization and progress are are mostly good for for people, that they have the potential to be very good for the natural world, that um, that markets are very very important. Um, I might be a little bit more, I might favor a little bit more government than both of them, (laughs) Um, but um, certainly the fundamental processes of modernization, I think we agree are good. Um, I think where I'm going further than both of them is in the, the ways in which I'm trying to describe in some detail, how these processes are also good for the natural world and this, um, I think Bjorn in particular doesn't spend really much time on, on on what matters in terms of saving habitat. Matt Ridley spends a little bit more time on it. In fact, I've seen more of his writing of late do more of that. But I really wanted people to understand what it would take to save the mountain gorillas of the Central Africa of the of of. Rwanda, Uganda and Democratic Republic of Congo. I think I wanted people to understand that saving the mountain gorillas is about helping poor farmers get jobs in the city and and be able to eat artificial meat rather than uh, bush meat or wild meat that is important for taking pressure off of the forests in the form of their reliance on wood fuel And I wanted to give it a really, certainly stylistically, I wanted to take the reader there. I wanted to bring the reader into these situations so they can see the human suffering and also the environmental opportunity associated with that. And so we do that a bunch in the book on also yellow-eyed penguins, whales obviously, but I wanted to more firmly contest the claims that modernization, capitalism, progress, are bad for the, for nature. I think that some of what you get have gotten we've gotten from bjorn and and less so from Matt, but certainly also, I think has been a sense of here's what's good for people, but leaving this other big question unaddressed, and I wanted to address it much more squarely.
2: I think you did a great job. and i I had a, a note about your style and the anecdotes, a firsthand experience that you kind of interweave into the text and I I think it was um, maybe my only critique of the book was, in some respects, you are a globetrotting uh, eco warrior or environmentalist. And it was, uh, in some respects, uh, almost hard to follow all the different trips and the, the detail of each, the nuance of each uh, particular issue. But I thought it was well worth, um, you know, kind of slowing down and, and, and taking into consideration your firsthand experience. This is certainly not a book written from an ivory tower. And I think it was refreshing in, in that regard. Um, speaking of your perspective though, how, how does apocalypse never, uh, compare to your perspective when you and, and Ted Nordhaus wrote the death of environmentalism, what has changed, maybe not in the world, but in, in your mind about environmental issues since, uh, since that essay was published, what, back in 2004 or five, is that correct?
1: Yeah. Thank you for asking that question. Yeah. I mean, um, by the way, it's interesting. I've had some people that wanted more of me in the book, and I, I, I actually didn't want to take over the book. I wanted there to be these characters in the book. You know, there's three women in particular. I was called um, by one of the uh, climate alarmist, apocalyptic alarmist <laughs> authors who really, you know, whatever, uh, socialist, eco-socialist guy attacked me as promoting white supremacy, which I thought was ironic because the three main characters in the book are all women. And none of them are white. Uh, one of them is Bernadette, who's a small farmer in the Congo. The second is Suparti, who's a factory worker and labor organizer in Indonesia. And then the third is my wife. <laughs> um, but I definitely wanted those characters to. To um, I had somebody that was like, "You need to say more about you know why you changed your mind about nuclear." And I did a TEDx talk on that, and I was like, "I didn't want the book to be too much of me. But one of those characters to show up." Um. um so I'm sorry now, wait. Now I'm now I'm now I've now I've completely responded to the wrong question you asked. Um, death of Environmentalism, you know, this is definitely for me, it feels like a bookend. You know, it, it feels like 15 years later. I in it's funny because I've had a couple of Death of Environmentalism has come up a few times now, just in the in the last few days. So it's interesting you ask. I mean, what I would say is that what stayed the same for me if from that essay is a sense. A deep sense in which the kind of pessimism, the negativism, the apocalypticism, certainly the alarmism, but just the kind of anti-humanism, the Malthusianism, that that was at the core of what's wrong with environmentalism. Like that is the central thing. And that was that's crystal clear in Death of Environmentalism. And that's clear, I think, in Apocalypse Never. And that's just that's the pure line that runs on un, unbroken between that essay and Apocalypse Never. What's changed is, you know, a huge amount of technology, economics, and policy. I mean, I didn't really know anything about energy and technology back then. Um, We thought that renewables were obviously the solution because everybody said they were. We didn't really understand that there's an energy density problem, that it takes three to four hundred times more land to generate the same amount of electricity from a solar wind farm as a nuclear plant and that that really matters. And that the unreliability is an insurmountable problem. It just makes things more expensive. Um, I think we were both more apocalyptic about climate change than we are now. Um, I think those are sort of the big things. I mean, the, the thing I'm kind of most proud of, Death of Environmentalism, is there's a line where we say, you know, Martin Luther King didn't give the I have a nightmare speech. You know, you can't make the world a better place if you're just going around talking about how terrible it is and how we're... It's just there's nothing redemptive or positive in any of that. And so I think it is a bookend. And in fact, the last chapter in in Apocalypse Never in some ways speaks really loudly to that original essay, which just says this has become the dominant religion of, of secular elites in the West. Apocalyptic environmentalism has. They're completely unaware of it. They're in denial of it. They think they're doing science when they're really doing religion. And it's kind of obvious to everybody in the room, except for <laughs> the people that are that are entrapped in it. And I think we were speaking to some of that in that original essay, um, both the good and the bad parts of it.
2: In, in your opinion, Michael, are we uh, witnessing the last
1: throes
2: of of uh, radical or alarmist environmentalism, or is there a persistence to this this notion, this belief set? that we're never going to fully extinguish and maybe a second question of that is your subtitle uh why environmental alarmism hurts us all what are the dangers and can we kind of unpack some of those dangers of alarmism i mean in some respects right if there are alarmists who are not doing science uh, they're they're just uh, throwing anecdotes out there and, and um, tear-wrenching videos up on on uh, instagram but they're not really having much of an impact. Maybe we could just ignore them. But I, I sense that there's a real hazard here in this continued alarmism. So I guess first question is, do you see it um, persisting in, into the future generations? And if if so, what are the kind of our worst case scenario? What are the what are the concerns that you have about their impacts on
1: not just the environment but also on human progress? Great questions. Terrific. I think it will continue to become stronger. And that even if if climate change, climate change may not continue to be the main vehicle for apocalyptic environmentalism forever, but there will be some vehicle. And that the prior vehicle was, of course, concerns around overpopulation. That was the, in fact, the whole agenda on that basically just gets used to to support act, the same climate agenda. Um, so I think if it's not, and that basically died down, both because you know we everybody realized that, really, you know, the directions we we're going in the right direction in terms of human populations. Uh, the 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 rate of growth peaked in the late '60s, and we're probably going to peak at nine or ten billion people by whatever twenty sometime twenty thirty twenty forty somewhere around there, and that that's going on its own and it's positive and. And so it was sort of at that moment, plus the end of the Cold War, which took away nuclear weapons as the main apocalyptic fear that climate change became the vehicle of it. But it certainly seems like other things, I mean, we've seen Y2K, I mean, there's certainly many candidates at any given moment for the apocalyptic anxieties, which are fundamentally, I think, manifesting from anxieties associated with the death of God. I mean, with what Friedrich Nietzsche described as the decline of traditional religion as the most important event of centuries, I mean, of millennia, right? Nietzsche, that's Nietzsche's whole famous thing is, and this is where Apocalypse never ends, that that humans will need to create new gods. Well, we did that. or So it gets proven right away in the early 20th century with, with fascism and communism, both get discredited. Malthusian environmentalism, which is this weird hybrid of reactionary, conservative, anti-enlightenment, Malthusian ideology with socialism, with Marxist socialism. And even though Marx and Engels, as I point out, hated Malthus, they thought he was a stain on the human race. That was their language. Somehow it kind of creates this twisted, sinister hybrid of you know, and, the, and conservatives sometimes say environmentalists are watermelons—they're green on the outside, they're red on the inside. I think that's partially right, but also, there's also this reactionary anti-humanism that was new um, and was not in earlier versions of socialism. So I think that—that I think secu- so. I think if you think that secularism is the engine driving the desire for apocalyptic fantasies, then I think you have to think it'll keep going. You know, I live in the Berkeley Hills, which is an upper middle class, highly educated, highly secular and very white neighborhood. And there is somebody painting on the side of the entire side of their house, a white lady, Black Lives Matter and all the names of the people who all the African-Americans that have been killed by the police. And I look at it as an anthropologist and I kind of go, this is a religious this is what she's doing is a religious ritual. And I don't say that to be, I'm not, I'm not saying that to put her down at all. In fact, I can, I I think she's expressing some need for some religion and they all kind of go together, you know, climate apocalypse, you know, we're all, we're all sinners. We're all guilty. We make ourselves feel better. I mean, the classic criticism of white guilt in the sixth, in the, was, uh, came out 30 years ago, but white guilt is stronger than ever. And it's become religious, something John McWhorter writes about. So I kind of think it's going to increase. I think the the real power to change it comes from conservatives um, because the, it's, it's on the left. It's so bullying and domineering and dominating, and it basically bullies moderate liberals to going along with a pretty sinister Malthusian agenda for renewables and organics imposed on the world. Um, it is something to worry about. Of course it is because it's making energies, it's trying to make energy and food scarce and expensive around the world. Of course, we should be worried about that. It's a direct attack on the basis of, of progress and of civilization. Um, so, you know, I think in terms of what do you do about it? I mean, obviously I wrote the book cause I thought, I think you have to push back on, on the facts. I think that conservatives have a special contribution here in that. I think we need a conservative environmentalism, which is something that has not really, I mean, you and your organization um, and um, the folks at Free and, you know, um, the whole Montana gang have done a lot of great work on the right in terms of what does that mean? I think we need a lot more of it. I think it's not necessarily just about markets, because I think markets are a part of it, but there's also this physical thing. And I think it also needs to be about a kind of vision of universal um, enfranchisement, you know, some vision of of the Enlightenment view that we should all be able to enjoy prosperity. That's a moral issue that most everybody agrees with. And only you're left with only a radical fringe of Malthusians who really disagree with that. So in some ways I go, it's really, truly, I believe this, that it's up to Cato and it's up to Heritage and it's up to AEI and, other, and others on the right to actually put forward a viable in, uh, conservative environmentalism to challenge the radical left. Because I do think once you do that, the your alternative will be more popular. But I don't think it's fundamentally about markets. And I don't think it should spend much time in climate skepticism, um, which I think is a dead end and and just been really damaging to efforts to challenge the radical left. Well, let me let me follow up on that,
2: if I can, because you mentioned Hayek and you mentioned the, the whales and the and the signals that prices can send and the coordination that prices can achieve in society. So why is it not about markets? And I granted, I'm, I'm biased. I, was, I worked at PERC for, for 12 years and we advanced a, a notion of free market environmentalism. And I must say a, a quick shout out to my friends in Montana. They're making a concerted effort to, to more directly infuse those ideas in conservation policy. But why in your mind is it not about prices? You mentioned earlier that maybe you'd uh, be an advocate of a little more government than Lomborg or, or Ridley why, why can't we just uh, rely on on prices to coordinate and signal scarcity and thus have people conserve scarce resources such that we never run out in your mind why why aren't markets enough
1: yeah um, well let me I think it's a, there's a policy question and I think though there's a more prior values or ideological or even spiritual question which is that, we we actually what's underneath the desire for markets is a desire for human well-being and human flourishing. And if markets did not support human well-being and human flourishing, then we I wouldn't be in favor of markets. Like I'm only in favor of markets because they do something. And there's certainly everybody agrees there's situations where markets don't do the things that we want them to do. I think folks at Cato would argue that there's fewer of those maybe than, than I would. And that's an interesting conversation, though I think there's something else, which is just that um, I think that the way that conservatives have approached this issue has skipped past the values question to the markets tool. Um, if you're gonna go markets are a tool, yes, freedom, human freedom is an end in and of itself, but markets you know, if markets didn't lead to greater human freedom and greater human flourishing, then we wouldn't be in favor of them. So there's a prior, I think there's a prior aspect there. And then I think the second prior aspect is the physical processes themselves, which can be illuminated, which I tried to illuminate in the whales story. It can be illuminated with price, but there is a prior, there are prior physical processes related to power density, energy density, Economies of scale and efficiencies that I think need to be unpacked better than they have. Because I think that the way people hear it is that if you just let people get rich, the environment will take care of itself. And I don't think that's been satisfying for, for, for reasons that are for good and bad reasons. I don't think that's been satisfying for people, and that it needs to be unpacked. So, more at that physical, but also at the values level. Chelsea,
2: I don't know if I've got time for one more question before we open it up to Um, the...
0: Unfortunately, I do think we want to go to Q&A because we have so many questions, but thank you both for that fascinating discussion. Um, In the course of your conversation, I believe the Cato Institute was characterized in passing as a conservative organization. (laughs) So I just want to note the Cato Institute is a libertarian rather than a conservative organization. Uh, And if you look at Cato's work on uh, areas like criminal justice reform, for example, the difference will become uh, pretty clear to you. But we're now going to go to Q&A. So uh, please submit questions via our event webpage through Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube. Again, the event hashtag is CatoEvents. To ensure that we see your questions, please use the hashtag. I'd like to actually start us off by asking the first question, uh, directed at Michael. For the first time since 1972, so for the first time in 48 years this year, the Democratic Party platform includes an endorsement of nuclear power, meaning that both major political parties in the United States now officially uh, support nuclear power. Do you feel like this is a sign that the public as a whole is starting to move in a more practical direction when it comes to nuclear Energy and that some of the uh, un, some of the negative associations that have unfairly tarnished nuclear power in the public imagination may be beginning to dissipate.
1: Oh, for sure. And there's a lot of signs that that's occurring, particularly among educated elites. It's less visible, or maybe just invisible, in a lot of the polling data. It did appear that you saw an improvement of the numbers in a Gallup survey last year. Um, there, there was a Pew survey earlier this year that suggested that there there wasn't a significant change. But it, I see the change very, very much so in the elite discourse, the news media. I think the I think that most environmental journalists are much more open to nuclear energy than they were 10, 20 years ago. And I think our our efforts uh, had a lot to do with that. I think that millennials, I think Gen Z millennials are much more open than baby boomers or Gen Xers were. I think that um, it's become it's become um, not okay to be a climate, to be, to be, it's it's not, it's hard to be taken seriously, increasingly hard to be taken seriously as somebody who who wants to address climate change and being anti-nuclear. So that's all the good news. I think the bad news is that people continue to have a lot of wishful thinking about renewables that is used as a way to dismiss the need for nuclear, and I think that the underlying anxiety with nuclear, which is that it's a dual-use technology that it is that it has the potential to be used by countries to make nuclear weapons, that that is um, that that is not going to go away. And actually, I think it is involves a kind of, as hokey as it sounds, I think it involves requires a kind of spiritual evolution, now sound really of of consciousness um, yeah, that ultimately. Here it is, that's the safest way to make electricity, and it is the way to make the most dangerous weapon that we've ever devised. And that those two things are not as separable as the nuclear industry or as many pro-nuclear people want it to be. And so I think that um, I'm impatient with kind of continued efforts to imagine that, that making nuclear reactors smaller or making them with a different kind of coolant or any of those things is gonna have much difference on public consciousness, mostly because they're not real, it does, those technologies don't really exist, but also because it misidentifies the hangups that we have about nuclear and that the hangups we have stem from a, a reality that is never gonna go away, not gonna go away on any time scale that matters. And that requires some kind of psychological growing up, so to speak, it kind of it requires some a maturation of our of our thinking about this very challenging technology.
0: Related to that, Travis Plank asks on Facebook, uh, a two-part question and you've already answered the first part. What do you think is the primary reason for the fear and demonization of nuclear power? I I think you've already answered that. But then he also asks, do you have any suggestions for convincing doubters that requires them to do as little research as possible? (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah well i mean i've done uh, i did uh <laughs> i've done uh, four ted talks on nuclear and some of them are very very short i think the shortest one is something close to is it 15 minutes and then i have a i have a longer one for 20 minutes so if they can do 15 minutes youtube video i would suggest why fear of nuclear hurts the environment i think is what it's called And I will say one thing about the fears is that after really struggling with this question, which is why are the people who are most alarmist about climate change, the most opposed to the only viable solutions, really, the only practical solutions, which are, you know, switching from coal to natural gas and using nuclear power. I should say the only mitigation solutions that matter. Why are they so opposed to the solutions? And I finally conclude that a significant number of them don't want to solve climate change, that it's about climate alarmism is about something else, including just being alarmist, that that's actually the the purpose of it. That, in other words, there's an instrumental quality of alarmism to get subsidies for renewables, get control over people's lives and behaviors, just get a sense of power over, over other people. You know have a spiritual heroic story about yourself and your life. That's all part of it. But also it's just the alarmism itself is like that's like what people want. <laughs> there's a bunch of people that want to just scare people. And and those people tend to be the same kinds of people as the people that wanted to scare people about nuclear energy and nuclear weapons back in the 60s and 70s. But at the end of the day, it's like I find there's basically base, you know, two powerful motivations that I can neither fully disentangle nor nor suggest that they're one thing which is a kind of fear of the bomb and kind of hatred of the bomb and a hatred that it's been a bomb that has actually resulted in the pacification of nations that you know the spreading global peace and then a second motivation which is small is beautiful we all have to live like people in elizabethan england did <laughs> complete with renaissance fairs and crystals you know and that there's a kind of we have to live in this simpler way and it can't be nuclear because that's the future and we have to go to renewables you know that's these two things and i sometimes i just go it's the same thing and sometimes i go it's different and different people but they're both so powerful so it's not just fear of the weapons because of course libertarians and conservatives are both less scared of nuclear weapons and nuclear energy than are liberals and progressives and people on the left and I think you you have to suggest that either there's an ideological reason for that, or there's a kind of some mix of personality and ideology. You know, I'm in Berkeley and we're the most neurotic about wearing masks, just like we're the most neurotic about radiation, the most anti-nuclear, the most chemophobic, the most phobic of pesticides. We have a great suspicion of corporations and capitalism. And so those things all sort of, man those fears Are not just random. They exist on the left, I think, for real reasons.
0: Uh, Roy G asks, uh, or rather he says, you've described some environmental advocates as alarmist. Please give us some examples of environmental advocates who are responsible in their advocacy, is what he asks.
1: Good question. Well, an easy way to find them is to look at the back of my book, and you'll see all the blurbs will give you a list of those people. Um, you know, a very good climate scientist. Um, I mean, we had two climate scientists blurb the book. One of them is is Tom Wigley. He called it the best book ever written on the environment. And he is like one of the main, he's he invented one of the main climate models that's still in use today. It's called Magic, and it's a major climate model. And so he's a climate scientist and And he's moderate. I have the former CEO of the Nature Conservancy. Um, It's a funny, you know, the people that like this book, I always tell people it's not a conservative book, you know, it's not a right wing book, maybe in the same way that Cato says we're not a conservative organization, you know, it's embracing kind of liberal principles and progress. Um, And so, you know, there's people that support it, like Paul Robbins is a socialist Environmentalist out of the university of wisconsin and he likes this book but the ceo of the nature conservancy and the chief scientist the former chief scientist tend to be more kind of corporate environmentalists so it's funny it's a funny mix of folks but those are all the i mean those are the you know i'm not i wasn't being facetious if you also google praise for environmental progress like it, it, the book is kind of a Rorschach test for, for a, way to, a way to quickly discover who the moderate environmentalists are. But it's really all my heroes, by the way. I mean, those are all the people we that, that ended up blurbing the book.
0: We have a couple of different questions about nuclear waste. Uh, the simplest one and the most succinct one is from Mark, who simply asks, uh, what should we do to handle nuclear waste? Yeah, so for
1: for me, the way I think of it is that the nuclear waste is why nuclear is the best from an environmental point of view. And, and what that means is that what you want as an environmentalist is you want to have modes of production, ways of producing food and energy, I mean, everything else, products and stuff like that, but let's just say food and energy, that produce the least amount of waste and use the less the least amount of resource. And the two things are obviously related. It's just, that's when we talk about the, the throughput, the mining and materials that are required to produce a given amount of food and energy. And, and the less of those inputs then the smaller the waste byproduct. So a single glass of uranium that size can provide me with all the energy I need for my entire life to get that uranium it's incredible what they're doing now. I mean, basically they just put they, they pump hot water into areas with uranium. It comes out of the ground. They don't even have to mine it. They don't have to really dig it up in the ways that we imagine mining would be. It's a tiny amount of resource. And then that fuel, that uranium fuel at the end of the process, a couple year and a half in or two years, and then it's in cold water to cool off. And then it, it's stored on the side of production. That's the amount of waste. So like like as an environmentalist, and it's not liquid, it's metal, it's the fuel rods. So as an environmentalist, I go, wow. I mean, explain to me again what the problem is. The waste is then stored at the site of production. The total amount of nuclear energy waste in the United States can fit on a football field stacked 50 feet high. There's tons of room at the existing nuclear plants to store waste for hundreds, thousands of years. I mean, it's just, I mean, the sites, they made them bigger than they needed to be because of the phobia around nuclear. There's a bunch of advantages of the phobias around nuclear. One of them is that these huge plants, they don't need so They have all this additional room. So for me, I kind of, and if you understand every other form of waste production, fossil fuel waste is air pollution that kills, shortens the lives, let's say of six or seven million, or I'm sorry, about 4 million people a year. Wood fuel, the smoke, kill shortens the lives of about 3 million people a year coal ash, there's the wastewater fluid from fracking solar panels produce two to 300 times more waste by volume as nuclear, it contains heavy toxic metals whose toxicity never declines, it all goes into landfills. All of it, or it gets dumped on poor countries in Africa, where in some cases they break up the solar panels. So humans are going to leave a waste byproduct on earth and the goal should be to, to leave as little of it as possible and for that waste byproduct to be as safely contained as possible and nuclear just literally defines the gold standard of waste management. There have been people in the nuclear industry often often with financial motivations that wanna dig a big hole in Nevada and bury it. There's no reason to do that. That's a religious ritual. They're proposing to use taxpayer money to fund. There's no physical or environmental justification for it. You don't need it, like the waste is perfectly, safe. And in fact, it's great where it is, you should not want to move it. There's some people that want to reuse the waste as fuel for future reactors. Great. We should do the R&D for it. We've been doing the R&D for those reactors since the 1950s actually have the Russians are operating demonstration prototypes of them. They're fine. You don't need them. Um, you know, it makes people feel better when you tell them that we're going to reuse that waste. But for the most part, nuclear waste is good. Because it means if you have nuclear waste, then you haven't created all these other forms of waste, which are actually dangerous and harmful to people and and to the natural environment.
0: Ashley E. Stumvall asks on Twitter, there is a huge space between alarmism and optimism some issues, including climate change, she says, are worthy of very genuine concern. So in your view, how does the general public find that balance, the balance between uh, alarmism and uh, optimism?
1: Well, let me tell you what I worry about. And and I'm going to go be so bold as to say, I'll tell you what I worry about, and I think are the most important environmental problems. And I think you'll be hard pressed to find a lot of Environmental scientists, prominent environmental thinkers, who, if you confronted on it, would actually disagree. So for me, the biggest problem is that there's still one to three billion people who rely on wood and dung as their primary source of energy. They tend to eat wild animals if they can eat if they can get meat or protein at all. That kind of agrarian poverty is the biggest environmental problem. Um, it's a human problem. Um, but it's uh, it's a threat to forests, a threat to wildlife, it's a threat to habitat because those are low efficiency farming. Relatedly, second is just the use of the landscapes for habitat for endangered species. We've lost, or for species, we've lost about half of all wild animals in the world since 1970. That's the big issue. That's the big problem is the decline of animal populations, not extinctions. Uh, extinctions aren't great, but there's not the main concern. The main we can actually sustain some species with small numbers. And so we just end up having a, you know, a thousand whooping cranes or a thousand mountain gorillas. It's not great. You know, a thousand yellow eyed penguins. You'd like to see more of those. And that means that you need to grow more food on less land. So it's just a problem of low efficiency agriculture. For me, those two things are by far and away far bigger environmental problems than Amazon deforestation, climate change, extinction, and plastic waste. And that we need to get back to those problems because they're not going necessarily where we want them to go there are is good news we're using less land for meat production which is our by far our single largest use of of the earth we use a quarter of the ice-free surface of the earth for pasture for meat production and that amount peaked in the year 2000 which is great so yeah i agree i mean i think the optimism pessimism is um not a great framing. It's a very simple framing. I don't. I don't mind it when people call me an optimist. But um, you know, if you ask me, how is wild fish stocks? I would say not great. Not going in the great. Not going in the right direction. We need to be doing a lot more fish farming, a lot more more aquaculture. How are we doing with um, you know um, other species? I you know, whooping cranes, mountain gorillas are actually doing a little bit better. But still, I mean when you have spectacular wildlife that you want higher numbers I wouldn't say I'm optimistic you know in some ways I then now that I know the data on whooping cranes which is that they're having a hard time getting large numbers to survive in the wild and we still have habitat constraints I'm not optimistic Um, I'm I'm very optimistic for humans to be able to survive challenges in the natural world in fact I'm working on a piece called why we're so good at adapting to climate change and so bad at adapting to progress i just think a number of our biggest problems from political polarization to anxiety and depression and and what we call homelessness which is really an addiction and mental illness crisis these are problems and then you know and the social media addictions um, these are all problems brought by human progress and they're the hardest problems and in some ways i think that we try to you know wrestle with climate and plastic straws in part because they seem like things that we can actually that are more easy to affect than you know persistent racial inequality you know uh you know low social mobility you know declining trust in authorities um rising political polarization You know, these, I mean, our country's in a mess, as we all know, like you don't even, I mean, in some ways it's a relief to talk about the environment because then you don't have to just read the newspapers every day and see the extent to which Americans really seem to hate each other right now. Anyway, I just digress, but um, (laughs) um, that's a short way of saying, um, you know, yeah, you want to put these problems in context. I don't think we want to be Pollyanna about them.
0: Thank you. Uh, The next question I would like to direct to Reed, uh, who may want to comment on some of the previous questions as well in our remaining time. This question is, what should schools be teaching students about climate change, environmental concerns, and natural resources? And Reed, of course, is a professor and educator.
2: Um, I hate to sound droll or or simplistic, but I think uh, I go back to principles of micro, uh, principle of microeconomics, and the the, set, the old saying that there's no such thing as a free lunch. The world is is a world of scarcity, and there's always trade-offs in every decision that we make. Uh, for me personally, it's refreshing to hear Michael talk about environmental issues through sort of a marginal cost, marginal benefit lens. Now he didn't use those terms, but that's the the one of the concepts that he's applying. So you know, I, I think. Especially the younger the students are, um, the more you can just say, look, we, we can address almost all of these issues, but what is it going to cost us to do that? And what are we willing to give up? Um, there was a question earlier about alarmist environmentalism and, and who are some of the more reasonable or responsible ones. And I, I started to chime in there that the, the environmentalists who are humanist environmentalists and and, 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 and inherent in that. Description of a humanist environmentalist is is a recognition that there are trade-offs, and it's sometimes very difficult to trade or to compare um, whooping cranes to economic prosperity. How do you make those How do you make those um, comparisons? It's not easy. It's not clear cut always. Um, but to simply recognize that everything comes at a cost, everything has an opportunity cost. Your our audience has a, a, they could be somewhere else. They're facing an opportunity cost. They could be somewhere else, but they're here with us. Those are the that's the thing I think um, when we view environmental issues through that lens not just the Nirvana fallacy of would we solve everything of course we would but we can't solve everything we got to pick and choose that's the that's the lens I try to invite my students to apply to to the environment
0: Do uh, did you have any comments on any of the other previous questions as well so many of them could apply to your expertise as well Reed
2: Oh, thank you for asking. But no, I think those are great questions. And, and they, they um, fortunately answered or asked some of the same questions I was going to ask Michael. Um, I guess, you know, one one question that wasn't uh, asked was of Michael was, you know, what are the issues? And he, he addressed this a little bit. But what are the issues that that you would tackle right now? What are the ones where's the low hanging fruit, so to speak, for a, a libertarian conservationist that that you've studied, Michael?
1: Well, thank you. Um, That's like a great way to wrap up, too. I mean, I think for me, I think there's, um, you know, like I I said, I'm in favor of like natural gas replacing coal, Um, but I don't think the natural gas industry or the technology needs any help, Um, you know, at least not from me or from environmentalists. Um, It's cheap, it's replacing coal, but nuclear energy needs a lot of help. And so I spent a lot of my time still trying to help Countries, policymakers, journalists, activists understand why nuclear energy is it's not just good, it's also a responsibility that we we have been we have this technology and we need to be better stewards of it than we've been. And then the other issue is renewables. People think they're good and they're mostly bad. <laughs> just to be kind of crude about it. They're just the environmental impacts are very large and we're basically in a fever dream. I think that people are in kind of a trance state about them, they don't understand the land use requirements of them, they don't understand the wildlife impacts. Um, So for me, I spend time trying to raise some awareness about those and at some point I'd like to get to some advocacy on what I consider energy justice issues, which is that we should not poor rich countries. What happens with poor countries is up to is up to poor countries fundamentally i don't think it's up to what rich countries do but i don't think rich countries should be making it so much harder for the last people to climb the ladder to get out of poverty like we're doing with by cutting off world bank funding for for fossil fuels as well as for hydroelectric dams and nuclear for that matter so so for me those are the big priorities and that goes with also not also supporting intensified agriculture capitalized agriculture and not this just romantic love for agroecology, organic farming and the like, particularly in poor countries. And yeah, I'm happy. I saw there's a question. I'm happy to do another question. Um, I've got time if, if people want that.
0: Sure. For one more question, one that might be easy to answer. Quickly. Chelsea, I've got one if I can check that. Uh, um, sure, go ahead.
2: So I, as the director of the Hayek Center at Clemson, I've got to ask this question. As you mentioned, the, the resource footprint, both inputs and outputs for nuclear being, in your words, clearly the best or clearly the, the least uh, consumptive. If we removed all price distortions, taxes and subsidies, would nuclear energy still rise to the top? Uh, could we could we harness Hayek and prices and, and still arrive at nuclear? Or, does nuclear need help, as you say? Do we would you argue for subsidies uh, for nuclear?
1: Yeah, great question. And I'll, I'll use it to sort of also provide a, a last sort of vision of this, which is that you know when you when you when you understand that you know half of all people now live in cities and are concentrated in cities, and that that number is going to just go up over the next century. And if we do move to nuclear, and if agriculture continues to become more intensified. I think of the Netherlands. You know, when I took off from the airport early in the morning, and I looked down, it was all these greenhouses lit up, and they're so productive, and they produce so much food on such tiny amounts of land. You have a vision of a world where there's a lot of room for nature and a lot of room for habitat and animals to come back, and that's a world. It's a high energy world. It's an electric world. It's a world where, where we can have human flourishing and and, and environmental restoration and environmental progress. And I'm very, very, I mean, for me, that's what gets me up in the morning. That's that's our tagline is nature and prosperity for all. Um, It does require nuclear. You know, like I said, it's really just the most important thing is changing consciousness because ultimately, yes, I mean, in answer to your question, if I had to guess how much more expensive nuclear is because of its ridiculously overregulated state, I would say probably twice as expensive. I mean, it should be... It should be cheaper than natural gas. And I think it will one day be. The problem has been it's over regulation. I mean, literally the bike racks are nuclear grade. And, 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 but, you know, even in, but I will say, you know, the flip side of it is, is that the Koreans managed to build nuclear plants faster and cheaper than they built coal plants because they just had so much experience. So experience can overcome the over regulation in the case of nuclear. So to answer your question, does nuclear need subsidies, you know, in most cases, what it really needs is a guaranteed, it just needs to know that it has a guaranteed customer, you know, so the big we're right now advocating uh, me, I'm with a former extinction rebellion activist, actually in Britain, we're advocating for building two more reactors identical to two reactors that are already in construction. And, and if the government gives approval to that project, the money that finances, it will be private money. Like it'll be pension funds. Conser- it'll be conservative, low yield, low risk money because it's been guaranteed by the British government. So, is the guarantee a form of subsidy? I don't know. I guess so, although no money, certainly no public money has gone into it. But you just need, with a project like that, whether it's like a bridge or a tunnel, you might have private contractors building it. But at the end of the day, you do need the society through the form of the government to say, yeah, you can build that nuclear plant, um, and so for me, I just think it's not as much about is it is it, you know, subsidized. You know, is it not subsidized? Is it regulated? Is it not regulated? It's just more like I just think if people understood what nuclear energy is and that it's mostly good and we should be using it more, then um, then that would have an impact on the economics through the politics through the regulations. And through the financing, that would, would I think loosen up.
0: Thank you so much to both of our speakers and to everyone who participated. We had a lot of truly fantastic and thought provoking questions. And I apologize that we could not get to all of them, but we are currently a little over time. Uh, the video recording of the event will be available tomorrow on Cato's webpage for the event. Please be sure to check out the book Apocalypse Never Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. The book can be purchased on Cato's website.